baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to a special edition of KCBS In-Depth. I'm Jane McMillan. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Thank you for joining us. This week, we commemorate the anniversary of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941. We are so fortunate today on In-Depth to introduce you to two local heroes of the greatest generation who were serving that day at Pearl Harbor and survived. Both were teenagers from Midwest farming communities who saw the world change that Sunday morning right before their eyes. It's my honor to bring you their stories. Mr. Michael Mickey Ganich, now of San Leandro, was born in a small town near Akron, Ohio in 1919. And upon joining the Navy in California, he was assigned to the flagship of the Pacific Fleet based at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. Tell me about Pearl Harbor, what it looked like, what it felt like in 1941 before December 7th. It was really a vacation place, but there's so much unrest throughout the world we thought this is a place that maybe something would happen. Tell me when you joined the USS Pennsylvania, the flagship of the Pacific. I was assigned to USS Pennsylvania, a battleship, 608 feet long, 33,000 ton. I reported aboard August 15th of 1941, and I was aboard that ship when the attack on Pearl Harbor. Whenever we were port, we tied up a 1010 dock there, which is a, one of the long docks. It's called 1010 dock because it is 1,010 feet long. There was a flagship. Admiral was aboard there, and the rank has its privileges there. Whenever we came in port, we tied up at that dock because some of the other ships had to ride a boat for maybe 15 minutes or so to get to shore, but he liked to just go ashore. So normally we'd be tied up at that dock, but we had propeller trouble there, and so they put us in a dry dock. So we weren't in a uh, normal place, but we would have been. The Japanese knew where all the ships were at. They knew every ship, knew the names of the ships that were there, but they didn't get the word that we went in a, a dry dock. So as a result, they attacked ships that were in our normal place. When the Pennsylvania, though, was in dry dock and when the first wave came, even though it was in dry dock, it was the first ship to return fire. It, it was. In fact, some of the people on our, our ship were shoot, shooting at planes there before the people below decks knew what was going on. Some of the gunners were close to the guns and saw what was going on. They started shooting there before well, the rest of the people knew that anything was going on, even though the ship shuddered. After the ship shuddered there from a, a impact of the guns going off, then they found some general quarters there, and that's when the rest of the people knew what was going on. So uh, battle stations went there, and you go as is there for your battle stations. What was your job on the Pennsylvania? My job was in a navigation division. One of our jobs there was steering the ship, 
It could be helping the navigator to find out where the ship is at out, out at sea, being a lookout there. And that Sunday morning, I was reading that your that the crew of the Pennsylvania, including you, were supposed to have a football game against the crew of the Arizona. And so you were in your pads and cleats when the shooting started. Yes. What happened? One, one of the main hobbies that I had was playing football. In fact, and I played two years of high school, in one year of semi-pro football, and then I joined the ship's football team when I got aboard the ship itself. We were scheduled to play USS Arizona for the fleet football championship that, that day. That was going to be the Super Bowl of the Navy. You know the Super Bowls that they have nowadays there. We didn't have all that hoopla out there, but it was going to be the Super Bowl of, of the Navy itself there. The USS Arizona wanted to get revenge on us because the night before, they had the Battle of Bands at Block Arena, which is a recreation area right there at Pearl Harbor. And it just happened to be there that the battleship Pennsylvania won the Battle of Bands over the Arizona. And there was a lot of friction on that. A lot of people decided that just because you had Admiral aboard there, they voted there that you you won the Battle of Bands there. So the Arizona wanted to get a revenge on us. So we're scheduled to leave, leave a ship at 8 o'clock on Sunday morning to do a little scrimmaging with our padding on. Now, the living compartment of the quartermasters is back by the rudder, back by the propellers there, the back part of the ship there. About seven minutes to eight, the phone rang. I picked up the phone, and one of our own men called down, says the Japanese attack in Pearl Harbor. I said, oh, come on. By that time, General Quarters went, all hands manned your battle station. Now, I had all my padding on, except their helmet and, and spikes there. So... Battle stations goes. You go as if you don't worry about to, what you're dressed or anything. You go because you don't have time to do it. Now I'm way back in the back part of the ship. There, I had to go about two thirds to three quarters of the way across the whole ship of a six hundred and eight feet long just to get in the area and then go up a about oh, maybe seventy five feet tall uh, battle station to get up in the crow's nest because that was my battle station. And besides getting up to the crow's nest, I had a little trap door to get up there. So I have all my padding on shoulder pads. That's uh, The trap door isn't that, that wide, so I had to pull myself one arm at a, at a time to get through there and get up there in my battle station there. So I'm, I'm up there. No guns, no nothing. All I had is a pair of binoculars and a phone wearing report anything. Now, I'm I'm up there high. Old, I can see over the top of the buildings, and I saw a plane coming over the top of the buildings from fleet landing over to the east, east part of the, of the harbor itself. And I report this plane co- coming in and got the word there. The gun, gun control heard, heard the words and trained the guns around. So when the plane came over the top of the buildings there, they did get them. That was the one only plane that... Uh, uh, we got at that time. But the Pennsylvania took a bomb from 10,000 feet. Well, we got a uh, a bomb in the first attack here. See, we weren't in our normal place. So we were not hit in the first attack. 
But evidently, one of the Japanese pilots, or more, maybe more than one, reported a big ship in dry dock with two other destroyers. So the second attack is when they hit us. A bomb came between the two masts there, missed me about, uh, if we figured around 45 feet or so. Armor-piercing bomb came on past me, went through two decks and exploded and shook me. It did not hurt me, but again, it's kind of scary to see a big hole along, alongside of you there. At the same time we got hit, the destroyer and the dry dock, the Cassin, got hit at the same time. And it, it started rolling over on the other destroyer, and it said, flood the dry dock, flood the dry dock. Only bad thing about it, their oil comes up on top of the water, caught fire, so we had flames all around us. That's the only hit that we we had that that particular day. By that time, all ships were all kinds of ships were burning, buildings were burning, areas. It's like a Fourth of July. Anybody said they weren't scared; they were a liar. We we're all scared, especially there when thinking how close the bomb came to the people there in my, in my particular station. Plus the ladder that I climbed up to get up to the crow's nest there, we saw machine gun nicks there where machine gun bullets had hit the mass. Now, whether it happened before I went up there, after I went up there, while I went up there, I don't know. It could be some of our own, because everybody's shooting every direction. It could be friendly. It could have been planes. We don't we don't know. But that that's, gets, gets kind of scary, too. From your viewpoint, 75, 80 feet up mm-hmm. in that crow's nest, I... I can only imagine what you saw. You're higher up. In fact, some of the planes buzzing around there were lower down than than I was there because the torpedo planes has to come in low, drop its torpedo, and then then go back up. So you could see then when the Arizona was hit, then you could see when the Oklahoma was hit, and the California. So from your viewpoint you were watching the whole day unfold <laughs> i had a bird's eye view of everything i could see what was going on and, and anybody said they weren't scared we were alive we were all scared but we we're trained to do what whatever we was trained to do we did it do you remember the sounds and the smell and can you describe that for us well really no no sounds or smells there except <laughs> when when the ship got to, uh, got hit there and all that smoke and flames coming up there, it got per, pretty dense up on top of all that smoke coming up there from uh, the flames and the, uh, the oil burning on top of the water. It But uh, uh, as far as the noise were up there in the open areas, it wasn't as crowded. It wasn't as noisy it would be in a, in a closed-in space. That's what I liked. I liked open air because I'm a, I'm a farm boy, and that's why one of the reasons that I— picked being a quartermaster to get up in that crow's nest yes yeah you lost a lot of men on the pennsylvania that day two officers and how many we lost 23 men that day and injured a lot of people there but uh, compared to the uss arizona arizona lost 1177 people that day in fact speaking about the arizona I had a friend. He lived about 100 yards down the street from me back in Ohio, where I'm from. I played football against him. We played the same position. He went to a different school. I played football against him. And he's one of them, uh, the 1177 st- still on it. So that gets kind of close to home. What was the 24, 48-hour period like after the attack, once the waiting for maybe another wave was over? How to start putting all that back together? 
Well, a lot of the people are, were on ships there that uh, uh, they couldn't go back to them, so they went to other other ships. In fact, we had some of the people came because our ship wasn't damaged like the Oklahoma and the West Virginia and the, in Arizona. And it was a mess. Everybody is trying to find out where they're at. In fact, I knew one of the people that was on the USS uh, West Virginia. He was, went to another ship there, and they reported him dead. He he came back to his hometown there and called up, and they said, I they thought you were dead. And he said he was on another ship there temporarily. So it's a big, big mess. A lot of confusion there and a lot of things going on, and uh, people are making all preparations there for getting ready to fight a war. But it took us about maybe two weeks to get uh, underway because the only uh, hit we got was that one one bomb it hit. And it's far enough inboard, it did not affect as far as uh, seaworthy or not. So we got patched up in less than two weeks. We're on our way back to the States to get ready to fight a war. You said that you weren't surprised that there had been rumblings. They had been talking about it there for a, a long time there due to the fact what Germany was doing, taking over practically all of uh, all of Europe. In Japan was taking over so many places in the Pacific. Did you get to hear President Roosevelt's no, address? No, I didn't I get to hear. We were uh, we were kind of busy. <laughs> and you stayed with the USS Pennsylvania through the war. Which... USS Pennsylvania, the ship was commissioned, I think it was built in 1915, commissioned in 1916, an old battleship. We could do about 15 knots downhill with the tailwind. We didn't. We didn't have the speeds I used for fire support. My my ship was an invasion of Attu, Kiska, Macon, Kwajalein, Anahuac, Palu, Saipan, Guam, and Philippines. All those invasions. After the invasion of Philippines, there we came back to the states to uh, Bethlehem Steel and Hunters Point get fixed up for the invasion of uh, Japan. That was the latter part of July, 1945. We're on our way. On the 6th of August, something happened. They dropped atomic bomb on Hiroshima. Three days later, August 9th, they dropped atomic bomb on Nagasaki. Three days later, August 12th, we got in Okinawa, get ready with all, all the other ships were there. 8.30 that night, a Japanese plane came in with the lights on. Nobody fired a shot at it. Aimed its torpedo at the closest big ship with a battleship Pennsylvania. The torpedo hit the, the propellers there on the starboard or right-hand side there, the living compartment of the quartermasters. I had 26 quartermasters. I lost 20 of them that night. Oh. The next morning, the Japanese asked for peace. We're trying to stay afloat while they're signing the peace treaty in to in Tokyo Bay. We're the last big ship hitting hitting World World War Two. Got hit on uh, December seventh, nineteen forty one, then get to hit the night before Japanese asked for peace. So there at the beginning, and at the end. Yeah. In the Pacific. We served our country, and I'd I'd do it all over again. We can't thank you enough for your service and for. Helping us remember, and then for coming home and building a new a new nation, a new middle class. Well, I figured there with these near misses, the God had other plans for me. So I talked to schools, clubs, colleges, anybody wants to listen. I enjoy talking to the kids. I give them a little history lesson. I tell these kids they're, they're the future of our country. Tell them to take care of it. We're glad that part of your plans included talking to us. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. That Sunday morning, just across the channel from Mickey in the Pennsylvania, 
was Charles Chuck Kohler, now of Concord, but then a 17-year-old from far northwest Minnesota on the adventure of his young life. Well, it, it was a great experience for a young farm boy. I really was excited about going, going to Hawaii. You know, the Navy promises you travel and experience and some excitement. And I was enjoying that travel and that uh, experience I was having, and the excitement was yet to come. <laughs> I was in an upper-level office of BP-23, a patrol squadron's hangar building 54. Uh, I was trying to type a letter to my dear sweet mother with that old two-finger hunt-and-peck system, and I heard the sound of approaching aircraft in the background, you know, but that's not unusual. We're a naval air station. Airplanes come and go, but not usually on a Sunday and not that early in the morning, you know. Uh, the sound of that airplane changed, and I knew immediately that it was in a power dive. And I'm thinking, oh, that's one of those carrier air group pilots. You know, he's got a little bit bored with that regulation formation flying, and he's wanting to do a little hot-dogging and have a little fun. And I'm thinking, boy, he is really going to be in trouble when the commanding officer gets a hold of him. Suddenly and almost simultaneously, there was a tremendous roar and bomb fragments, explosion debris, and window glass came crashing into the back of my head, ears, neck, and onto my shoulders. It took me a few moments to get my train of thoughts back together, but when I did, I'm still thinking it's one of our air group pilots hot dog and crashed. I'm going to go down and see if I could be of some help. Uh, I pushed myself back from that debris-covered desk and typewriter, got up, shook off as much of that debris as I could, and started for the door. When I got on the lower level, the sound of another aircraft. I looked up, and here comes this airplane in a steep power dive, and I'm seeing what's looking like blinking or flashing lights on the front, hearing strange popping, buzzing, and whizzing sounds all about me, but I don't recognize either of them for what they were. Later, I was told that what I thought was blinking or flashing lights was actually machine gun muzzle flashes, and those popping, buzzing, and whizzing sounds that I was hearing were those machine gun bullets striking and ricocheting off the steel hangar door right behind me and off the concrete apron on which I was standing, you know. But I'm just a 17-year-old kid. I don't recognize them for what they are. Uh, anyway, uh, my interest was drawn to a big old bomb hanging there on the bottom of the fuselage between the fixed landing gear on that uh, Val Drive bomber. Suddenly that bomb released. It wobbled as it began to fall, and that airplane began to pull out of his dive. By the time it had completed its dive and was in level flight, I don't think it was more than 100 to 150 feet over my head, it's then that I first saw saw and recognized that big round red insignia there on the bottom of the wing. That and the fact that he has just dropped a bomb has convinced me that these are not the friendly fellows I thought they might be. Chuck told me just as he'd figured out what was going on, he was ordered with others to take cover in a ditch. And that, he says, did not sit well with them. Let's go get some guns and ammo and shoot these blankety-blankety-blanks, you know. So I hadn't much more than hit the bottom of that ditch, and I and that ordnanceman were on our way up out of the ditch. Somebody calls out, get back in the ditch, get back in the ditch. 
I don't want to be in their ditch. We're military men. We should be putting up a defense. We shouldn't be here in this ditch. Besides, I know this is the beginning of that war that they've been talking about and we've been preparing for, and I'm from a proud family, and I damn well know that if I'm going to lose my life in this or any other battle of this war, I would want my family and my country to know that I died fighting, not hiding. We continued to bother that ditch, started to run for the ammo shack. Then I heard the most unexpected military command directed at myself and that ordinanceman that I thought I would ever hear, especially under those conditions. We weren't running from the action. We were running to it. Anyway, somebody, again, I suppose the duty officer shouts, get back in the ditch or I'll put you on report for disobeying a direct order. Hell's bells. Talk about being between a rock and a hard spot. These guys in these airplanes are machine gunning and dropping bombs, trying to kill as many of us as they could. And our own duty officer sheltering here in the ditch is threatening us with military discipline for wanting to defend ourselves. I couldn't believe it. And he didn't obey it. Chuck and another sailor grabbed a machine gun, ran to some parked PBY boat planes, mounted the gun inside and started shooting. I looked up, and here comes another one of those airplanes in a steep power dive. Same old blinking, flashing lights. Now I'm only hearing popping sounds, which I were later told were some of those machine gun bullets passing through the fuselage of that airplane we're in. Big old bomb hanging on the bottom. Bam! We got around the chamber. Shoot, I shouted, and he pulled the trigger. I stood there and watched those tracer bullets fly off through empty space where that airplane had once been. I think that's when my country boy, Hunter Instinct, kicked into gear. I used to shoot jackrabbits on the run, Chinese ringneck pheasants on the fly. Nah, not with a shotgun. With a twenty-two caliber rifle, I shouted, let me get the next one. Just as I did, here comes another one of those guys in a power dive. Man, I got a bead and a lead. I continued leading and firing all the while the airplane came down its dive, pulled out into level flight, and passed just overhead. I watched those traceables fly through the air, and it looked like every one of them went right into the round opening in front of that old air-cooled radial engine dive bomber, then stitched the stitch right down the bottom of the fuselage. I did some damage to that aircraft, but you're not going to be watching him to see what happened to him. He's going away. He's no longer a threat. You better be looking for the next one that's coming at you. I bring that gun back down. I'm looking for another one to power dive. There, there's one out over the channel, maybe two city blocks away, well within the range of a 50 caliber machine gun. He's not in a power dive, but a steep banking and descending left turn is always lining up to make another machine gun run on us. Because he's in that banking turn, I can see the cockpit. I figure at that distance and at that speed, if I use a front of that airplane as my aiming point, I'm going to get some rounds into the fuselage, hopefully into the cockpit with that pilot. I don't think I got off more than about six or eight rounds, but I saw at least two of those tracer bullets disappear into the fuselage of that airplane just forward of the cockpit. And when they did, that airplane did an abrupt rolling right turn and was gone from my field of fire. No more aircraft came back to bomb or to strafe our end of the island that morning. I stayed at that gun. I got the fire short burst at other aircraft on their way to or from other targets, but no more head-on turkey shoots like those first ones were. About halfway through that raid about the same time that second wave of those attacking aircraft came in the USS Nevada came down a channel making a run for open water boy those pilots those airplanes got on it like a swarm of bees they were hoping they could sink it there in the channel and that would have blocked the harbor for some time I got the fire short blasted some of those on their way to or from Nevada but by now our own aircraft parked on the ramps and on the apron and adjacent hangar building 6 hangar 1 all of which were between where I was there in front of building 54 and and Hospital Point, where the USS Nevada headed, those airplanes, that hangar was beginning to burn so fiercely it's putting up some heavy clouds of black smoke that it just obliterated that field of fire. 
I think it was 50 years later, I was listening to a radio broadcast from Hawaii, uh, Pearl Harbor. They had, that year, they had made a special attempt to locate as many of those pilots who had participated in that raid at Pearl Harbor. Uh, and they asked this one pilot, what part did you play in that raid? Now, listen carefully to this. He said, I was the lead pilot of a group of nine aircraft. Our assigned targets were the airplanes and the hangars on Ford Island. That's where I was. He said, when I went in for my first run machine gun, dropped my bomb, I didn't see a soul. It was like the whole island was asleep. But he said, we were surprised how fast they reacted. Because by the time I came around and was lining up for a second machine gun run, there was so much fire coming up that I turned and went elsewhere. Oh, I would love to have talked to him. There's the guy that dropped the very first bomb to fall at Pearl Harbor. That's the guy that dropped the bomb that got the meanest built of my blood, most likely the first blood to fall at Pearl Harbor. But in spite of that, I think I'm the guy that maybe got to him mentally with that on-target 50 caliber machine gun fire and changed his mind about coming back and machine gunning us a second time. It went on for about two hours, but they left us alone once we put up that fire and stuff. I think he must have got on his radio and told his wingmen, don't go back there, because they didn't come back and bother us anymore. There was still going on all around us, and so we immediately got to trying to salvage what aircraft we could, uh, pulling those that weren't burning away from those that were uh, just doing whatever we could to salvage what we had, you know. If you could take us there to the aftermath, what it looked like, what it smelled like, what it sounded like, the kinds of conversations you were having once the planes left. Well, uh, when you're firing a 50 caliber machine gun, you can smell that gunpowder. You not only feel the recoil, but you smell that gunpowder. I can still smell it today, (laughs) almost. And uh, to me, I thought airplanes were one of the most beautiful pieces of machinery you could ever see. You know, being used to working with farm equipment, this was altogether different, I'm telling you. And I was just so angry that they were destroying those beautiful aircraft, you know. One of the things that happened, I seen a guy there with a camera taking pictures, and I, I, I got really upset with him, and I told him, why, why don't you put that damn camera down and get something and help us, you know? He said, man, I am photographing history. And I think maybe that might be one of the reasons that he came back later uh, when we were sandbagging for machine gun emplacements because we thought they would be coming back with the landing parties. And I didn't realize it until... 2007, and I was looking in one of the books. It's the uh, Pearl Harbor, December 7, 1941, America's Darkest Day. And I was looking through the pages, and there's a picture of three other guys and myself sandbagging that machine gun nest. You know? And, and I, re- I thought, oh, this was his way of showing me that what he was doing was worthwhile. You know? So uh, what we done there will be forgotten, but, but his work there will live on forever, those pictures and stuff that he takes. Anyway, it, 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 it was a very, very exciting experience for a 17-year-old farm boy. Were you able to get outside information? Were you able to hear... President Roosevelt's address to Congress after? Oh, yes, I heard it, and I have forever admired that man for what he said. You know, he was, was, to me, maybe one of the greatest leaders we've ever had. Like Mickey Ganich, Chuck Kohler served in the Pacific Theater throughout the war. I 
was involved in that very first action that got us into World War II. And then the last military event that I got to be involved in down there in the Pacific was to be in a party that went ashore over on that island of Ailing Lap Lap and to lower their flag and then raise the American flag and accept their surrender. So that I was involved in the beginning of the war and there in one of the last military acts. That kind of gave me closure, you know. I thought, well, you got us real bad on December 7th, but we're bringing down your flag today, you know. Chuck Kohler, thank you very much. You're very, very welcome. Thank you so much. On December 7th, Chuck Kohler will be at the annual lighting ceremony of the Mount Diablo Beacon, which commemorates the attack on Pearl Harbor. He and Mickey and all the survivors and their loved ones ask that we all spare a thought that day. I hope I hope that what we have talked about here today will help some people to to realize to just take a short period of time to remember those guys that lost their lives there at Pearl Harbor. Some of those were my age, so they have given up. On December 7th, they will have given up 75 years of their life. If they can give up 75 years, surely the people of the Bay Area can give up a few moments just to watch for that beacon sometime between sunset on the 7th and sunrise on the 8th. If they will stand for a few minutes and watch that beacon as it rotates and sends its brighter and broader beam of remembrance out across all the valleys below. If they will put their in the right frame of mind, and if they will listen carefully, not only with their ears, but with grateful hearts and respectful minds, then all of those people who down through the years, not just at Pearl Harbor, but anywhere and everywhere, who have given their life in the service of their country, those people will communicate with them. They'll do so in unison, as if with one voice. Their message, their plea will be the same. Remember us. Remember us. We gave our lives while in service to you. From Taps till Revali. To Chuck Kohler, Mickey Ganich, and all the Pearl Harbor survivors and their families, our thanks. I'm Jane McMillan. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 